From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn how the Milwaukee Common Council works and what role an alder person plays in passing legislation. Because the city of Milwaukee is its own local governance, um, it can make its own laws through resolutions, through ordinances, or through charter ordinances. It has to conform with state law, but we do have an ability to regulate local government. Then, Capital Notes explores the latest in the redistricting lawsuits and what's at stake. If you have one or even both houses controlled by Democrats, it changes everything. The discussion about expanding Medicaid, about taxes, about environmental policy, everything would change in the Capitol. We'll visit a new Harambe community cafe that just opened along the Beer Line Trail. Plus, here's some music performed by Carmen Nickerson. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. The Milwaukee Common Council is the lawmaking body of the city. All 15 Common Council seats will be on the ballot this spring. But ahead of that, there will be three aldermanic districts on the primary ballot on February 20th. Alderman Michael Murphy is not seeking re-election. He served on the Common Council for decades. WUWM Eddie Morales asked Murphy about how the Common Council works and what role an alder person plays in passing legislation. What is your history and your experience with the Common Council? Sure. Uh, Michael Murphy, uh, alderman, uh, elected in 1989 in the special election. So I've served uh, nearly uh, 35 years, nine terms. Prior to that, I served for five years in the office. So my total employment with the city is approaching 40 years. Can you describe what responsibilities common council members have? Sure. So the city of Milwaukee is approximately, you know, 600,000 people. We're broken down as a mere common council form of government, and there are 15 members of the common council. Each member is representing approximately 40,000 people. Um, They're nonpartisan, elected on a four-year term, uh, coterminous with the mayor. And an alderman has really mainly two responsibilities. One serves as a legislator for making laws in the city of Milwaukee, and the other serves as an omnibusman in which they work with constituents to help solve city problems that their constituents may be having with city government. So how do residents communicate with their elected officials? Well, it's changed a lot uh, over the years. I mean, when I first started, obviously the internet wasn't around, um, so it's very much talking to people at neighborhood meetings, going door to door, meeting people in their homes, stopping in grocery stores, having coffee, Um, certainly um, snail mail. People used to write a lot of letters, Um, but it's changed a lot over the years. Obviously, um, the internet uh, becomes more of the main uh, way citizens communicate with their elected officials through the electronic communication. And certainly phone calls continue to be a major issue. How does policymaking and passing legislation work? So, great question. So, if a citizen, for example, has a thought or an idea about how to change and make a law, they contact their local alder person or their mayor and say, and they make a suggestion. And they would like to know is it legally possible to um, pass a law regulating, let's say, um, the restaurant industry? So, what happens then is the local elected official will research that with the Legislative Reference Bureau. They'll check to see if there's any state statutes that may preclude it. Because the city of Milwaukee is its own local governance, 
um, it can make its own laws through resolutions, through ordinances, or through charter ordinances. It has to conform with state law, but we do have an ability to regulate local government. So we look at what legally is permissible. Um, we then re research to determine you know, the pros and cons of that legislation. We draft that legislation. And then as the president of Common Council in collaboration with the city clerk will then direct that legislation to the appropriate one of seven standing committees the Milwaukee Common Council has. So we break legislative items up into standing committees in which that item is referred to. And each committee is comprised of five members appointed by the president of Common Council. And they would take up that proposal, review it, have a public debate on it, and always open to public meetings. And then the council committee could either hold it, they could pass it, or they could turn it down. Let's say they pass it, then it's referred to the full common council, which we meet on the third Tuesday of every month, with the exception of August, um, which we're out of session. And then they take that legislation up and they can either vote for it, they can hold it, refer it back to committee. But for this argument's sake, they can let's say they pass it, this then referred to the mayor. And the mayor then can have the opportunity to vote it for it and sign the legislation or not sign the legislation. It still becomes law, even if he doesn't sign it over the uh, past 10 days. But if he um, vetoes it, then it gets sent back to the Common Council at its next regularly scheduled meeting. And the Common Council can either sustain or override that with a vote of 10 votes, um, which is two thirds of the Milwaukee Common Council. Can you clarify any misconceptions about what people think the Common Council is responsible for? Sure. I think most people, you know, realize the Common Council members have um, the authority over city government. Um, and that involves city issues involving from the police to sanitation. But I, I think over time, people um, have come much understanding that that position is probably the closest to the citizen in terms of elective office. Uh, there's an old adage, you know, all politics is local, a book by Tip O'Neill, former Speaker of the House. And I think quite honestly, um, people in Congress or in the Senate or in the state legislature, and I'm not saying it's because of them or, or, or their activities, um, but because of, you know, whether it's COVID or other issues, they become more distant from the citizen. They feel that, you know, those issues, they really don't have an impact upon, for example, national policy or foreign policy, or even um, administrative actions involving um, that our federal government may have. So the first person they generally call is their local office person because they see them in the restaurants, they see them at the grocery store, and they know they're very accessible. So they contact the local office person, whether it's city, state, or federal issues, because they feel that they can really effectuate and have an impact in making changes. So I think that's a really uh, positive thing about being a, an uh, alderman, all the women on the city council is because quite honestly, I can make a difference. I can make a change within a couple of hours or within a week. You can't always say that with federal or state officials. If you could just describe what districts are up for election and what's at stake for those open seats. Sure. So there's um, 15 seats that are open, um, but in terms of elections, a few of the races are really are, are competitive because some um, eight automatic races, there's no opposition. So the incumbent will be taking over that a seat again, um, unless some extraordinary circumstances arise. So there's seven um, competitive races, but there's two open seats. And that what I mean by that is that the current incumbents are not seeking re-election. And that's the 10th district and then 
uh, Alderman uh, Borkowski's district, um, who is also not seeking the election. That was WUWM's Eddie Morales speaking with Milwaukee Alderman Michael Murphy. At WUWM.com, you'll also find another conversation with Alderman Murphy reflecting on his 35 years of service from Lake Effects Excret Nunez. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at WUWM.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. A new community-centered cafe just opened in Harambe. There's a trio of friends behind it, and they shared their plans with WUWM's Lena Tran. So Kumba means creativity. Um, it's a creativity that uh, an individual possesses that they can use to make their community better than they inherited it. It's the, the principle. It's the sixth principle of Kwanzaa. That conversation in about 12 minutes. But first, we'll have the latest Capital Notes, which explores updates about redistricting and an upcoming tax bill. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. It's time for Capital Notes. WUWM's Mayan Silver is back to speak with J.R. Ross from WISP Politics about the latest local political news that you should be aware of, from redistricting to tax bills. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, JR. Good to be back with you on Capital Notes. Hey, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks to you and Chuck for keeping it going while I was on leave. Oh, of course. He was a great fill-in. Yes, definitely. Okay, so I'd like to start with the latest on the redistricting lawsuit in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. To catch people up, the Democratic voters who filed the suit argued that the court should create new state legislative maps by mid-March. For people who haven't been following the play-by-play, remind us of what's at stake with these redistricting lawsuits. Potentially the balance of power in the Capitol. I mean, Governor Evers has been working with a Republican-controlled legislature with large majorities the entire time he's been in office. If you have one or even both houses controlled by Democrats, it changes everything. The discussion about expanding Medicaid, about taxes, about environmental policy, I mean, everything would change in the Capitol because you'd have a different power dynamic. But as long as Republicans hold both houses, and with substantial majorities, the governor's playing defense more often than not. So it's really a huge, the stakes are just huge in this lawsuit. Okay, so the latest in the lawsuit is that, about these state legislative lines, is that consultants were hired by the court's majority. They said the GOP-drawn maps were partisan gerrymanders, but that the Democrats' plans largely met court criteria. The GOP legislators' lawyers have filed briefs in response to the consultants, other things have been happening. What's important to know now? Well, there are a couple of things going on. One, uh, all of the parties in the case filed a response to that consultant's report, which, like you said, found the GOP map to be a partisan gerrymander. 
It called a map from the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty a stealth gerrymander, in their words, basically saying that of the, the maps admitted that, have, uh, that we have, the four from the Democratic parties really have the best, uh, best chance of meeting your criteria that includes political neutrality, quote-unquote. So then there was a, a series of briefs filed in response. No surprise, each party argued, hey, our, our map is the best. We think you should pick it. But there's also a motion filed by the attorneys for Republicans and lawmakers, conservative voters, arguing that these consultants, um, that either the report should be ignored, thrown out, or there needs to be some more explore, exploration here about what's going on. They should sit for um, depositions. They should be able to ask questions about the criteria they developed in the report. Basically, it's two things. One, Republicans have long argued that this case has been sped up, that there hasn't enough time to explore issues such as what does political neutrality mean? How do you measure that standard? Um, they argue, for, among other things, that there's a geographical advantage to Republicans in Wisconsin because their vote is more spread out, or Democrats are more concentrated in urban areas. And really, it's also part of a delay tactic. Republicans are looking at this and saying, hey, if we can just get this thing passed this year, uh, past 24, 24 elections, we can live fight, fight another day. There's a Supreme Court race in 2025. If conservatives win back, control the court, that this lawsuit could go away. They're just trying to find a way to slow things down and keep maps ahead in 2022 in place for 2024. So given that fact, there were some conversations over the past week with legislative Republicans kind of floating the idea of passing Democratic Governor Tony Evers' maps. What are you hearing on this? What are the chances that the legislature and Evers would resolve this on their own without the courts? Well, Senate Republicans have, have teed up the possibility of doing that very thing during the floor period on Tuesday. The governor, when asked about that possibility of signing his own maps, at first was kind of a little bit um, noncommittal, but made clear later last week that, yes, if they sent his maps back to him as is, he would sign them. Now, remember, Republicans took the governor's maps and then made changes a month ago that paired fewer Republican incumbents. The governor said, that's not right. Uh, those aren't my maps. Once you change them, they're not my maps or yours. And he vetoed that bill. It looks like Republicans are considering just doing the governor's map. And you might say, well, why would they do that? This is a Democratic proposal that would, you know, create a path for Democrats at least to win back control of both houses. Well, it's possibly to some people, some Republicans, the best of a series of bad options. If you look at the maps that were proposed by the Democratic parties in the lawsuit, there's the governor, Senate Democrats, uh, the Democratic voters who sued to overturn the maps, and a collection of professors in Dana-Milwaukee counties, there are more pairs of incumbents in other maps in the court. They are tougher, some of them, to get a majority for Republicans than the governor's map. So they've looked and said, well, if we pass this map now, both houses sign off, the governor signs it, you have certainty. Because the court, it doesn't have to have a decision for another month or so. The Elections Commission has asked, um, we'd like to have a map, if you're going to do a new one, in place by March 15th. That gives the commission time to put those lines in place by April 15th, the first day to circulate nomination papers. That way the people know who they can ask you know, for signatures, that kind of thing. So you've got that kind of hanging out there. There's no immediate requirement for a decision. Well, if you pass a map now outside the law, you know where you're running. If you have to move, you know, okay, I've got to start thinking about a new, a new place to live to be in my district. You can start recruiting candidates. You can start raising money. You just, it creates certainty when you're facing a difficult situation as a Republican to get this done now rather than waiting longer. 
So what's the advantage for Democrats, you know, in terms of having the court do it instead of having Governor Evers' bills passed by Republicans? If the court did it, you might get an even better map than the governor's map. You might get a, a more favorable map politically than what Evers proposed. Now, the downside for Democrats is there is a chance if the state Supreme Court draws a map, you could get the Republicans to go file a lawsuit with the U.S. Supreme Court and say, hey, there was something amiss here. They've argued Republicans that there was a violation of due process. This case was prejudged by Janet Protosiewicz, that it was appropriate that she sat on the case after receiving nearly $10 million from the state Democratic Party. In talking to people on the Capitol, they don't think there's a great chance the U.S. Supreme Court would take that lawsuit, but there's still a chance. And if you can avoid that, then you're going to get a map that's better for you than what you have right now in place for 2024. It could be worth the trade-off. That, that security of knowing you've got a more, a quote-unquote, fairer map for you politically than what you have versus the uncertainty of, okay, we have a new map, but the U.S. Supreme Court step in and change everything in a heartbeat if it wants to. So are you anticipating you know, Governor Evers to be on board with, with you know, if the legislature passes his maps? He said he would. Now, again, he's made clear he would as long as there's no changes, you know, no, no fooling around with his maps, no tweaks, anything like that. So he's waiting to see what comes out of the legislature if they do it. But if they pass his maps as is, then he said he would sign them. All right, you're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Ayan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. Okay, JR, there's nothing in life that's guaranteed except death and taxes. We're headed into a week of floor sessions in the legislature. There's a $2.1 billion tax bill on the agenda in the Assembly. It would pack in more than 1 million Wisconsin residents into the second lowest tax bracket. That's people who make between $19,000 and $150,000 per year. Who is for this? Who is against it? And why? Well, Republicans are pushed this package. The governor has vetoed other tax cuts they've proposed in the past. And what they're doing now is saying, look, they gov- hey, Governor Evers, you've said that your kind of target audience is those making up to $150,000. Well, okay, we're going to take that second smallest ta- or second lowest tax bracket in Wisconsin for income taxes, and we're going to expand it to cover income up to $150,000. We're going to gear these other tax bra- cuts toward people in that kind of income bracket because you've asked for it, and then we'll see what's going to happen. Well, the response from Democrats has been, we're worried that by passing this now, we are putting us in a difficult situation for the next budget. Remember, back when the budget was signed in July of 2023, we were expecting about a $4 billion surplus at the end of 2025. The latest estimate from the Legislative Fiscal Bureau, the nonpartisan budget arm legislature, has pegged up more about $3.25 billion. Uh, sounds like a lot, but part of it is as a package of bills that would provide more funding for the universities of Wisconsin. So that's about 400 some million dollars. It's also a slight dip in projected income or tax revenues. So that's another $400 million. So, you know, that's not the not small amount of money, 3.25 billion, but the Democrats argument is there's some uncertainty. Uh, let's not go out there and spend this all right away. Now, the other thing is they also know if there's a new map and if Democrats win a bunch more seats in November, it could change the dynamic in the Capitol. Governor has paid, played defense with his budgets for the last three cycles. This could be one where he'd be more, you know, what he wants, not what he's trying to prevent, but what he wants in terms of how that money is spent. So the more money you have sitting around come early next year, the more the governor have to play with in crafting that next budget. I guess there was some back and forth between some Republican legislators uh, 
Republican Rep. David Steffen said, I look at tax cuts like they're burritos, they're all delicious. And then <laughs> Senator Calderoy's said, they may all be delicious, but they may not be equally nutritious. So what what about this particular tax cut that Republicans are proposing would Evers have, have a problem with? Well, the income tax one will be interesting to see. It's the biggest piece of that pie. The governor seem most open to expanding a uh, tax credit for child care and dependent care. But the caveat is he'd like to pair that with uh, some solutions for uh, the child care industry. He has said over and over again we should be spending money to help um, help that industry to uh, subsidize their payments for workers to keep them open because if you lose daycare access, you lose workers because they can't go out in the workforce and stay home their kids. So he, he likes that paired, but that's the one he seemed at least a little bit open to, but we'll see. Gotcha. Okay. So ongoing negotiations about that. Thanks again for the insights, Jair. And as always, thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. A new community-centered cafe just opened in Harambe. Kumba Juice and Coffee is in the Connector Building along the Beer Line Trail. Development in this area aims to revitalize a rail corridor historically used by many old Milwaukee breweries. The cafe founders are friends Alexander Hagler, Joe Furch, and Ellie Jackson. They share their plans with WUWM's Lena Tran. How did we get here? How did y'all come together? So this Kumba Juice and Coffee here in the Connector Building is uh, really a part of a larger project to help facilitate you know, more activity around the Beer Line Trail and, uh, and Harambe in general. How we all came together is uh, kind of uh, many years in the making. Joe and I went to college together like over 10 years ago. We were in a fraternity together. Um, Ellie and I used to live together. Uh, we met uh, at, with Victory Garden Initiative just a few blocks away. And we've all kind of like had our own narratives and art and wellness and you know music uh, entrepreneurship uh, in in this neighborhood in Harambe yeah Joe and I actually in 2019 we started a, a wellness retail cafe and yoga studio space over on center and MLK kind of our uh, you know our way to try to kind of create something bigger than ourselves something that you know obviously our community needed to have addressed which is you know more space for wellness uh, unfortunately the pandemic kind of put uh, a kaput on that uh, a little prematurely um, but not too long after we got the phone call from Riverworks Development Corporation and they asked if we were interested in operating a space here at the connector building and so we teamed up with Ellie and kind of just been getting it going ever since cool yeah. we'll say more about your connection to the neighborhood it sounds like each of you feel that in different ways yeah I personally was a, an organizer with a, again Victory Garden Initiative where I met Ellie you know, we had youth programs, uh, garden education classes, and really just kind of utilizing this really large green space to kind of uh, address food insecurity here in the neighborhood. You know, I've had my own personal experiences with health and issues in my own family due to lack of access to healthy foods. Uh, so, you know, working here in this neighborhood along with Victory Garden Initiative and eventually organizations like True School and Groundwork Milwaukee, I'm um, really just kind of built 
you know, some momentum contributing to those efforts here in Harambe. It's really funny how we kind of came together to develop the space a little bit. So Alex and I were talking about this venture. We kind of started it 2021. We were having a conversation about how we're going to build this out. And we were actually sitting at a coffee shop called The Daily Bird. And Ellie Jackson was sitting there while we were having a conversation how we're going to build this out. And then naturally, things kind of built from there. I reached out to Ellie knowing our experience together. Um, We actually played soccer, so separately. Ellie and I were connected through our soccer team for the last eight to 10 years, and it's just kind of organically built its way here. I love that. Coffee shops bringing us together to make more coffee shops. (laughs) (laughs) And I I moved to Milwaukee in the fall of 2013, and I moved into River West. It was the River West 24 that really sold me into this neighborhood. And within like 48 hours of moving to Milwaukee, I discovered a nonprofit, a mostly volunteer-run group called Be In Tween, and they were doing work on this Beer Line Trail extension. At that time, it was called the Artery, and they were trying to take like found objects, like car tires, and modify them to be usable in order to make a usable space out of the trail, which at that time was gravel. There's still very poor lighting on the trail, which is part of this larger development, so trying to make it a safer place because of things like not having many access points on or off the trail, not being well lit, not being well activated. We were trying to take like basically found objects and make the space more usable through creativity. Um, And that was fall of 2013. And I basically never stopped. So I just (laughs) like continued to be involved in that group, be in tween. And so this, like having Kumba here and the connector building here, which is like a continuation of that project. It's really cool for me because it's like this physical manifestation of all of that work that we're doing in 2013 and on with no, you know, without a roof over our heads, just with the space. So that's kind of how I've been involved in this neck of the woods. Very cool. And can you explain the name? How does that, or where did that come from? So Kumba means creativity. Um, It's a creativity that uh, an individual possesses that they can use to make their community better than they inherited it, is the the principle. It's the sixth principle of Kwanzaa. Um, The reason we chose Kumba is because we wanted to create a value system or follow a value system that existed outside of the current mainstream system. I mean, I always say here in America, we talk about like liberty and independence and freedom and stuff like that. And it's very hyper individualism. But African village values, such as the framework that Kwanzaa was built on, it kind of speaks more to community efforts, not just an individual effort. It realizes that the individual is really uh, supported by a community and does great things because and hopefully for their community. Uh, So that's the guiding principle that we wanted to speak into this space, especially as we're sitting here in Harambe, which is predominantly a Puerto Rican and black neighborhood. Um, Harambe itself is a Swahili term, meaning all put together. Several years ago, I think it was a time in which a lot of people woke up to the idea that here in the Western world, we do kind of rely a little bit too much on uh, these values that doesn't serve communities at large. It's just, you know, it's just all for individual benefit. As we're sitting in a coffee shop, obviously a coffee shop spurs creativity. So it just kind of really seemed like a very fitting principle for a coffee shop, especially for the times that we live in right now. 
So what can people expect from Kumbo? So obviously we can expect a lot of creative programming as it revolves around um, bringing the neighborhood together, programming out the trail, and also we do have a community center that can be used for um, different community events. But what we want is really to bring the community together to kind of spur more development, economic growth, as well as just a closer, tight-knit community, bringing in that word Harambe all in one, all together, so that we can, you know, build a healthier, uh, more active neighborhood. We'll have a full espresso bar. We have a machine um, plumbed in right now, which is a huge step, I feel like, for us. Uh, we all have coffee sourced from Anodyne, which is a local roaster. Um, we'll also have fresh-pressed juices. And for starters, something like a grab-and-go menu with sandwiches, baked goods, um, with a more developed, more robust menu growing as our kitchen grows. This isn't an area that's served by lots of places like this to hang out. So how do you hope to connect with the surrounding neighborhood? I will say every time I'm here, and I feel like Joe and Alex probably can attest, a handful of people just pull over and ask us about what's going on with this space. And so I think the building existing, this being such a busy intersection, and like there are a lot of people passing by who are curious about the space. I don't know, I think word of mouth is gonna, gonna spread pretty fast. I've been talking to a lot of people the last few weeks that we've been coming in here to set up, and it's really exciting. Everyone is like, just let us know when we can come in because we're ready to buy coffee. And then the other interesting thing about this particular part of the neighborhood is that while it is residential, it's also pretty industrial. So there's um, different warehouse spaces here, auto body shops here, lots of different industrial businesses, and people have been also saying, you know, they're excited to take their lunch break here or start their work day here. And y'all are all old friends. What has it been like working together in this way? I love us as a team. We all have different skills. Uh, we all seem to have different interests, but we also are all like dedicated to the space and making this launch. So I feel like one way or another, we're, we're all have been maybe filling gaps where I couldn't do this on my own, but together we're, we're able to, to make it happen. And it's really important to have a friendship when you're going into a business partnership because we're going to have disagreements on what the couch looks like or where it's supposed <laughs> to go. And if we can all kind of come back to the table and remember that we're, you know, friends as well as business partners and that we're you know, going towards the same goal, we can, you know, always agree to disagree and still have a good relationship at the end of it. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Kumba Juice and Coffee founders Alex Hagler, Joe Furch, and Ellie Jackson. You'll find Kumba on the Beer Line Trail, and they're open for now Friday through Sunday and plan to expand their hours in March. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with local singer-songwriter Carmen Nickerson. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Carmen Nickerson is a singer-songwriter whose career has given her the tools to be somewhat of a musical chameleon. Originally from Iowa, Nickerson went out to Los Angeles to pursue music before coming here to Milwaukee, where she's been part of the music scene for decades. Nickerson has a long list of collaborators and artists that she's worked with, but it's her new debut album, Room to Grow, that brings her to the Lake Effect Performance Studio. Before we speak with Nickerson, we'll start with listening to a bit of her song called Emily. Faces down below in the tent like glow. The smell of the hay, the caramel corn, the glitter and gold of the side show. That was Emily by Carmen Nickerson off of her new debut album, Room to Grow. Carmen, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for being here today. It's great to be here, Audrey. Thanks Very for excited. also bringing such a great group of musicians with you. Can you yeah. introduce who is joining us in studio right now? Sure. On Jambé, Michael Jones, and on the piano, Kostia. He usually goes by Kostia, but his last name is Yefimov. And then we have John Wheeler on bass and Tracy Hahnemann singing backup vocals. Excellent. Thank you all for being here today. So, Carmen, your debut album is recent, but you have been a long-standing member of the Milwaukee artistic musical community. You've been a musician and a singer for a very long time. So, this is a gross oversimplification, but can you share a bit about how you went from your family's farm in Iowa to Los Angeles and then here in Milwaukee? How much was music of that driving force for you? Uh, Music was huge growing up. My um, grandma taught us all piano lessons, and my dad sang barbershop, so we always had the harmony in the house, which was super fun. So we were always in band, too. So I was in, played clarinet in the band for many years, was in every single choir I could be in, and played piano, and, and then in, when I went to school at Iowa State University in Ames, I also was in the choir there, continued piano lessons, and then... I didn't really start playing guitar till in the twenties, and I didn't start songwriting all until Los Angeles. Okay. So I. Um, so music was just ever present and something you wanted to. Music was stay always there. In. I wanted to do music for a living. Honestly, mm-hmm. uh, was either horses or music. I either wanted to do something, and my mom said neither of those are really good options. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't make money with either of those, and I think they're more terrified of the music part because of, sure. of all the, the scene. You know, they thought sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of mm-hmm. scene. We're worried about that. So that's why I ended up getting a degree in agriculture, because I just had to get a degree. It was something we were told we're going to get a degree. And it was a great experience, but it was more just having a lot of fun and going to parties. and Yeah. Doing um, that. I mean, I studied, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but today, fortunately, music has worked out for you. I just couldn't get it out yeah. of my um, system. I just wanted to do it so badly. I remember going out to see a comedian once, and this was in, before I decided to move to L.A., and 
we were super young in our early 20s, and we hung out with a comedian afterwards. And I remember him saying to us, I can't remember who else was with us, but it was like, you should never do anything in the entertainment business unless you absolutely have to. Mm. Like, this is a horrible way to make a living. <laughs> it's a horrible lifestyle. Yeah. That was his opinion. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, I have to do this. I have to sing. It was more singing at first. Yeah. Just well, you me. have been involved in, in a lot of singing, like you said, whether it's backup vocals. And this was a fun little tidbit I read about you. And I've always wondered about this, but never met someone in person. But can you share a bit about the world of being a jingle singer here in Milwaukee? Oh, it's just a great way. You just ru- I mean, I never know what the jingle is ahead of time. Um, I do a, a DK company, usually, Jim DeCook. And I just will go in and he'll show me the jingle on the spot mm-hmm. and then we'll record it and he gives me a couple hundred bucks and it's really easy fun money it's um but yeah it's it's definitely you don't get time to practice it at all okay I was yeah because you you know especially in like local markets and stuff you have companies that have their jingles and everything else and mm-hmm. uh is there one that you wish you could forget but you can't because you sang it so oh, much oh my gosh <laughs> there's one that I really like it was like bluesy it was like I'm in the mood for something tasty and real fine. So come along with me and I'll show you what I got in mind. I'm talking about dinner. And here's what I have to say. There ain't nothing like it nowhere. Red Rock Cafe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was it. They went out of business. I don't yeah. think it was my fault. <laughs> no, not your fault. <laughs> not the jingle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and with all these jobs and, you know, using your voice as a tool is a common thread throughout. And your experience across such different genres, backups, jobs, projects, it, it gives you a heck of a toolbox for your album here. It's, it's mm-hmm. it, Room to Grow spans genres and it shows off your capabilities and a lot of musical styles. So I'm wondering, did you have like kind of a central star that was your guiding principle for this album, but still giving yourself that flexibility to be in different genres for pretty much every song? Yeah, I think it's just that it turned out to be a journey kind of an arc of a life story. And so I think that's sort of a common thread is it's telling a story, even though the genres are so different. That's what ties them together. Because I did think, and they came out how they came out. Like, uh, I didn't really control how they wanted to come out. Yeah, just uh, (laughs) all the influences of jobs you've been on in the past and different musical styles you've learned, it just naturally presented itself with each track it feels like the song is its own it's like channeled through you Mm -hmm. and it just it tells you what it wants to be and you start strumming along and so like the title song the title track room to grow is country Mm -hmm. and i don't remember exactly how that song actually started sometimes i feel like it's here now it's just there i don't remember the process of it that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, and with your musical career spanning so many years, when would you say that, okay, it's time for my album? When when did that process start in earnest for you? 20 years ago. <laughs> but it's been a long, long time coming. But this album started probably three years ago. And I will be very honest, I think there was some insecurity, which I'm sure I'm not the only person who's had insecurities. <laughs> yep. But that feeling of, oh, who am I to put an album out and... And just feeling worthy, feeling good enough. So I think some emotional maturity happened where I felt like, yeah, I'm good enough. I can do this. I'm worthy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, if you are willing, let's hear another track from Room to Grow. This is the song of the same name. Can you share a bit about it with us? You mentioned it's a country song. It is. And it's kind of perfect because 
Um, my dad really loved Hee Haw. And maybe he, maybe he, would, he had passed on before I wrote, my mom and dad had both passed on shortly before I started writing these songs. And I feel like maybe it was him channeling through because he'd be so proud of this song and it could have been on Hee Haw. But it is about my childhood growing up on a farm. So let me just introduce the first lyrics. When I was going uh, with Willie, we were on the road doing some tours and we were heading through Iowa. And so we stopped on my farm to visit with my brother and I think the time my dad. And we were hanging out at the farm and my brother Joel said, hey, you remember that pony we had named Chico that we got from Jimmy Boom Boom Hansen? <laughs> I know, right? And so yeah. Willie was there. And thank goodness, because he said, you got to write that song. Got to write that down. Yeah. And so that's where the song was born from. And all the images of it are my experiences growing up in the countryside in North Iowa on a farm. We had everything. We had pigs and cows and sheep and 15,000 chickens. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to hear it. I'll reintroduce you. Uh, This is Carmen Nickerson, and we are about to hear Room to Grow. We had a pony named Chico from Jimmy Boom Boom. It had six grown kids in two bedrooms. No heater and no air in July. Baseball cards and mom's apple pie. Used to be so jealous of those city kids. With friends right next door through picket fences. Took a little time for me to realize there ain't no green or grass nor any blue skies. Cause we have room to grow on a kind of show at the Mitchell We had room to grow, we had room, don't you know? Big skies, black earth, and fresh air. The crops are in and it looks like stone. Mama, I don't wanna go. But the North Star is climbing high. Gotta see what lies beyond the rise. Call your father in from the chicken shed Set the table for the milk and say amen We hope you know we truly tried our best You're the last one left to kick out from the nest You need room to grow, your grass to grow You need a room to make mistakes Sometimes it's hard to know which way to go, but follow your heart for goodness sakes. Costia. Sit up in the mow and watch the storm pass by. These city lights that block the stars hold no charm for me now. Give me roses in a mason jar and a love that wants to stay. 
with six grown kids in two bedrooms. Yeehaw! <laughs> that was Carmen Nickerson and her band playing Room to Grow, the title track from her debut album. So, Carmen, one thing I want to talk about is the awesome power of partnerships. You mentioned mm-hmm. Willie Porter. He's a longtime friend of the show. He did our old Lake Effect theme music back in oh, the yeah. day. Yeah. And um, you write with him musically and you also produce this album of yours with him. So can you share a bit of how your partnership with Willie has influenced you? Yes, it has influenced me to feel a lot more confidence in my ability as a songwriter. And I've learned so much about well he's an amazing producer because he's done this so much he's has 12 or 13 albums out so he hears everything he hears all the parts I couldn't have done it without him honestly hearing everything um every track and well wouldn't have been as good without him let's just say that and um he's given me permission to as far as songwriting goes just try things out and try not to be so worried if it's great because things are usually aren't great right away it's not typical I mean sometimes a song might come out just amazing right away but he reworks songs all the time like sometimes I think this is great and he just thinks it's he wants to keep reworking it so I've gotten better about not being so judgmental self-judgmental like if the first time I see part it's not great it's okay just set it aside come back to it and keep reworking things I think that's an important lesson for all of us, right? Yeah, we're not instantly usually geniuses. Um, The, okay, what's his name that did uh, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah? Leonard Uh, Cohen? Yes. Yeah, I remember reading something about how he took years and years to write his poetry. So that was kind of encouraging to know that it's okay. It doesn't have to be wonderful right away. I mean, he went over his words for years. Well, how do you feel now? I mean, it's it's in the initial stages since it's released, but how do you feel about finally having your debut album? I'm so excited. I am really thrilled. I don't know how it could have all come together any better. Um, we had a couple album release shows in November, and they were both sold out. And my family came from all over the country, and they all got up and sang with me on the last song that we're going to do. They, they got up and sang along, and so it was such a beautiful, beautiful few nights and so much love and support. With you performing in Milwaukee, outside of this album, but in your musical career since settling here with the happenstance of a, a free place to live, you know, yeah. it's worked out very well. How has being part of Milwaukee's music scene been like for you as an artist? Well, when I first got here, back in the days of typewriters, <laughs> let's see, honestly, though, it was newspapers. I found I found a band through the newspaper when I got here in the 90s, and it was a band called Same. We, we, I think we actually decided what the name of it was. It was all starting out. So it was four women and one guy. We would get together and write songs. So that kept me in the game with songwriting because I didn't start writing until Los Angeles when I was dating a hip-hop producer. And he would make tracks and just he would say, hey, why don't you try to write something to this? And that's how that started my, my writing because I, I never even thought about writing before, and found like, yeah, this is interesting. So I didn't really do much original music. I did the original music when I first came here in the 90s for a couple of years, but then I ended up singing with a lot of cover bands for many years, and um, popular dance bands. We play 
weddings and private parties and festivals. And not until 2010, when I started working with Willie, did I get back into doing a lot more writing. That's when I really started to have more of an outlet for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a conversation about this once upon a time that Milwaukee seems to be a great place to be a cover band. Yeah. <laughs> like to for you to be in that, to, you know, keep your skills going, be involved in music. But yeah. do you, in your mind or in your experience, categorize like, well, this was my music career pre myself and this is me with my own work now? Um, I still do them both because to make a living at it, I have to be versatile. I think that's why I know so many styles of music is just to make a living at it. I had to do the jazz clubs and the dance bands. So every like dance song from the fifties to the current time. And I think it's fine. I mean, I still play jazz clubs and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing both. Yeah. Well, like you said, it just gives you so much experience to draw upon Mm -hmm. and it shows for sure. And you meet a lot of people too. It's great. Well, I would love to hear one last song, but before we do that, I want to thank you so much, Carmen, and to your band for being here today. Thank you, Audrey. This is called Ascension. There's a little girl kneeling in the evening light, praying to her father in the sky. What do I have to do? To rise above this dirt, why do we have to die? And the wind moves the curtain And it's been such a dry July Carmen Nickerson is a Milwaukee singer-songwriter, and her new album out now is called Room to Grow. Joining Nickerson in studio was Kostya Efimov on the keys, John Wheeler on acoustic bass and backing vocals, Michael Jones on the drum, and Tracy Hanneman singing backing vocals. Our studio session was engineered by WUWM's Jason Reavy, and you can hear the full versions of all three songs performed by Nickerson and her band at WUWM.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look at the latest developments in redistricting in Wisconsin. Plus, we'll learn about a program that's helping low-income renters become homeowners in the Metcalf Park neighborhood. Join us tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Still the moon shines through my window, tells me after night.